Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Mandatory minimum sentences were passed as law and imposed around the country and in Pennsylvania to address the drug and crime epidemics in the 1980s and 90s. Crime rates have been on the decline for the past 25 years, but the explosion in opioid abuse and related crime has prompted lawmakers to revisit the use of mandatory minimum sentences. In Pennsylvania, Republican State Representative Todd Stevens of Montgomery County recently introduced a series of bills that would impose mandatory minimum sentences for certain drug and violent crimes. Representative Stevens is with us on the air today. Representative, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. Also joining us is Chester County District Attorney Tom Hogan. The District Attorney's Association of Pennsylvania is in support of implementing some mandatory minimums again. District Attorney Hogan, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Good morning. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Representative Stevens, let me start with you. Uh, why did you decide that uh, Pennsylvania needs to reimpose uh, some mandatory minimum sentences? Well, Pennsylvania is an outlier in that um, just about all of our mandatory minimum sentences were invalidated by the court a few years ago on procedural grounds. And uh, I know a lot of folks talk about sort of the trend nationally, um, but, but we're unique in that we haven't had any now for the last couple of years. And so uh, a couple of years ago, I guess last session, um, we, uh, I introduced, along with one of my colleagues, um, a couple of bills, one to restore um, mandatory minimums for violent offenders and one to restore mandatory minimums for our drug traffickers, our drug dealers, um, and, uh, and it passed the House overwhelmingly last session. And then, uh, and, and frankly, it was at the behest of law enforcement. Um, I was a prosecutor for 10 years before coming to the House. So I spend a lot of time in, you know, digging in on criminal justice issues. And I've seen firsthand uh, how this is a, an effective tool for law enforcement. And our law enforcement, uh, law enforcement community has been, um, you know, crying for this, uh, crying out for this, these mandatory minimums to be restored so that they can get back to doing their job more effectively and efficiently. So uh, that's the goal behind this, and, and providing justice for victims is always going to be paramount, and that's what these would do. I, um, you know, in, in looking at this, I, as I mentioned in my introduction, it would only be certain uh, drug-related crimes and violent crimes. What in particular are you looking to establish mandatory minimums for? Well, um, you know, look, these are the most heinous of offenses and offenders. We're talking about people who rape children. We're talking about people who um, commit violent offenses against the elderly. Um, we're talking about folks who are illegally using guns to commit robberies, home invasions, you know, uh, burglaries, uh, things like that. I mean, you know, these are not, these are not your run-of-the-mill shoplifter or anything else like that. Um, and then on the, on the drug side, these are traffickers. There's been a lot of misinformation out there. Um, you know, these are not users. These are not addicts. These are people who are profiting and profiting off of and exploiting addicts. Those who are uh, troubled and afflicted with the, the disease of addiction are not those that are the focus of these mandatories. It's those that are profiting off of them by peddling their poison and killing thousands of Pennsylvanians and Americans every year 
uh, for profit. Those are the people that we're targeting with these mandatories. And I should mention that uh, later in the program, we're going to hear from a couple people who uh, oppose changing or going back to uh, the mandatory minimums. Uh, District Attorney Tom Hogan, let me bring you in uh, to the conversation now. The Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association does support uh, the legislation that uh, Representative Stevens has introduced and supports going back to some minimums. Why? Well, Scott, uh, there are a lot of different reasons, uh, but let me drill down into it and give you three basic reasons for this. And let me say, I've been a federal prosecutor, I've been a state prosecutor, and I've been a defense lawyer. So these are all from the perspective of all three. So the three reasons. One, mandatory minimums work. Nobody should kid themselves about that. They take the most dangerous criminals off the streets for a significant chunk of their most productive criminal years. And as a result, we have seen a major drop in crime. In the 1990s, when most of the mandatory minimums were put in, and they were put in by a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, since that time, we have seen a major drop in crime across the nation. Mandatory minimums have had a significant role in that. Not the only role, but a significant role. So anybody who is looking to get rid of those mandatory minimums is somebody who is soft on crime. Second, we don't always trust the judges. It was funny. I was sitting at a conference with about 100 judges, and I was the only prosecutor there. And the moderator asked the judges, why do you think mandatory minimums exist? And the judges had responses like, because legislators want to cater to their electors, because they're just trying to make a wave with the public, because prosecutors are lazy, because people are corrupt and racist. And finally, at the end of it, I raised my hand and said, is there any chance any of you believe, judges, that mandatory minimums exist because we don't always trust the judges to impose an appropriate sentence? Of course, they all hissed and booed. <laughs> but to give you an example, in our county, everyone thinks, oh, it's Chester County. All the judges are, are tough, and, and they're, you, know, you don't need mandos out there. In our county, we had a major drug trafficker got caught with the equivalent of 2,000 doses of heroin. 2,000 doses. That's 2,000 rounds of ammunition fired out randomly into our community. Each one could kill somebody. And he would have had a five-year mando. Instead, he got nine days in prison. Nine days. And ironically, the judge who did that in Chester County is the exact judge who first struck down mandatory minimums in Pennsylvania. So it is because not all judges will stay within the range of what the legislator and the people of this Commonwealth believe are appropriate sentences for drug traffickers, child rapists, and violent criminals. And the third reason is the people who are pushing back against the mandatories care more about the criminals than they do about the victims of crime and the good citizens of this Commonwealth. The lack of mandatories hurts most in poor urban areas, which you are now seeing an uptick in crime, particularly violent crime, places like Philadelphia. It is the good but poor citizens of those areas who need those mandatories back more than anybody else. 
Mr. Hogan, uh, when you're talking about people being soft on crime, later in this program, we're going to be talking with uh, Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel. Uh, You know, Secretary Wetzel doesn't exactly seem like someone who's been soft on crime. Uh, To be fair, John wants to empty out the prisons. Um, That is his, what he is looking to do. And that is not something, although John comes across very well, and I respect John, he is soft on those crimes. He is soft on letting those people out. The cost to our Commonwealth, the cost to the good citizens, would be catastrophic to let all of these people out. I have an email here from Paul, and I'll address this to you. Well, I'll address to both of you, but uh, Representative Stevens first. Uh, Paul says, when mandatory minimums were first established, it was thought to be a good idea. Now, years later, we find, uh, we find out that we were not able to arrest our way out of this problem, so what's different now? What he was talking about, and as I uh, you know, referred to earlier, uh, mandatory minimums came about in the 1980s and 90s, started on the federal level, uh, then came to the state level at the time crack cocaine had spurred a uh, a wave an epidemic of crime since then there has been a decline in in the crime rate but representative stevens going back to paul's question what is different now i mean we're not dealing with crack cocaine as much as we are with heroin other opioids what is different well i think you know that's part of the point look i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit here and make the claim that mandatory minimums are solely responsible for this but Crack cocaine is no longer a problem, is it? I mean, I don't hear, I, I didn't hear D.A. Hogan, um, you know, talk about a, a crack cocaine issue in Chester County. And the reality is we had very stiff and severe mandatory minimum sentences in place to help address that problem. Um, you know, it was one of, the, one of the facets of helping address that problem. I, I'm never going to sit and tell you that mandatory minimums are, are going to solve all of our crime problems. But what they do is, and... and you know, D.A. Hogan made a great point, and I think a lot of listeners need to understand this. When you look at when offenders commit crimes, you know, in their early 20s is when offenders are at the greatest risk for committing crimes. And to the extent that we take the most violent offenders and incapacitate them by putting them behind bars during, their most, uh, during the time in their life where they are most likely to be committing these crimes, we are improving public safety. There are a number of studies out there that talk about the reduction in crime that has been attributed to mandatory minimum sentences over the years. There are a lot of scholars who have quantified that, um, and they talk about the cost avoidance, frankly, um, from the public's perspective. You know, the victims who were not burglarized, the children who were not raped, the, uh, the addicts who were able to get treatment before they overdosed and killed themselves, from a deadly dose of drugs. So there are real costs to not having these mandatory minimums in place. And there's something that I just want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about Secretary Wetzel, because I, I too, um, I've always had a great deal of respect for Secretary Wetzel. Um, but frankly, uh, I'm deeply concerned when the Department of Corrections all of a sudden is claiming to be an expert in law enforcement. That's not their job. Their job, uh, frankly, has been to correct prisoners. I mean, that's their job, right? House prisoners, keep them safe, and hopefully, hopefully intervene in their life in such a manner that then when they are released, they no longer commit crimes. But it's, you know, it's roughly 50% of these inmates are going to recidivate within three years of being released from supervision. Well, you know, I think the DOC would be, um, I think it would be more appropriate for them to focus on what interventions do they need to engage in 
while they have full and total control over these inmates, instead of sitting saying, oh, 50% recidivism rate's the best we can do, so let's put these folks back out in the community. You know, that's not their job. And I know, and I've been disappointed to hear the Department of Corrections focus more on budgetary savings than on public safety, but that's exactly what's happening here. And I really think that they've lost, uh, lost sight of their mission and need to refocus on what they should be doing, which is dropping that recidivism rate so our communities would be safe and safer uh, once these folks are ultimately released. Let's take a phone call from Mary in Camp Hill. Mary, you're on the air. Um, yes, I believe that mandatory sentences, they didn't prove right when President Clinton uh, allowed those laws to be passed, and I don't believe that they're right at this point. And I do believe that they target minority communities more than they target the white community. And I think they are much more impacted by that. And I, I assume these two men that are speaking right now are Caucasian. And uh, would, uh, I just don't think they can relate to what is happening to the minority communities because of Clinton's actions years ago. That's my comment. Thank you for your call. Gentlemen, uh, when we do know that uh, there are many more, a bigger percentage, put it that way, of minorities uh, in prison. Uh, what about uh, what Mary has to say? Well, quite frankly, Mary sounds like she has not spent a lot of time in the deep urban areas because in the deep urban areas, what they are calling out for, and I've been there, I've had to work with these families, the victims, the people who have been ravaged by, by the drug criminals, and they want stiffer sentences. They want mandatory minimums. They want their communities to be safer. And what she is actually tracking is not racial disparity. It's an impact in poorer communities. And if you actually look back, you will see that it is poor communities that are affected by this because that is where the violent crime and the drug dealing is going on mainly. So it is not targeted at minorities. It is targeted at criminals. It is targeted at violent criminals. Representative Stevens, you had talked about the research earlier. There actually was some research in 2009 that uh, said that mandatory minimums, that they just don't work, that uh, there is no evidence to show that it did make Pennsylvanians safer. Now, I'm sure you're aware of that of, of, of that research. What's your response to that? Well, two things. So that research was done by the Pennsylvania Commission on Sentencing. I am a member of the Pennsylvania Commission on Sentencing, so I've spent a fair amount of time digging in that report. That report only looked at, I believe, four, and I don't have it in front of me right now, um, four mandatory minimums. And, you know, so it did not look at uh, the, uh, the issue of... Um, you know, many of the violent crimes in terms of robberies and burglaries and rape, uh, things like that, none of those were quantified. It only looked at, at just a, a few hand-picked crimes. But really the message out of that report was that um, the, the mandatories, frankly, one of the criticisms was that the mandatories were not applied consistently enough, that they needed to be applied more, um, that there needed to be a greater awareness of mandatory minimums. Uh, things like that were... Uh, were what was opined within that report. And, and frankly, you know, I, I could agree with a lot of that. I mean, I, I think I was a federal prosecutor as well, and there was a, pro a program called Project State Neighborhoods. And today, uh, if you drive around this Commonwealth, you'll see billboards that talk about the amount of time you'll get if you are uh, caught illegally using a gun. Um, and, and it'll, you know, they advertise this. And the idea is to make people aware of it. And to the extent that um, you know, we can embark on, on outreach and, and PR 
to uh, to go ahead and make sure that these uh, these criminals are aware of the dramatic penalties that they face uh, if they're caught dealing heroin, if they're caught illegally using guns, if they're caught committing violent crimes against children, against the elderly. You know, then I think as that report lays out, um, you would see a, a significant impact. Um, it, isn't that you know, one of that the report? God, I was going to say, isn't that one of the keys that because uh, I, I, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, the criminals, when they're committing these crimes, they're not thinking about uh, stiff sentences and what they'll go to jail for, because they all think they're not going to get caught. But that's, right. you know, and look, I, I'd be interested to hear, you know, D.A. Hogan's uh, take on that. But I've got to tell you, um, in my experience, particularly, let's look at drug dealers. OK, this is a business. All right. This is a business. And. What we need to do is raise the cost of doing business. I mean, I've sat across the table from drug dealers who said, look, I'm not going to cooperate with you. I'll do my two-year bit, and I'll be back on the street, and that's all there is to it. And, you know, if you don't have the leverage, if you don't have that hammer hanging over their head to say, no, you know what, this isn't just going to be two years. Um, you're looking at five years, and that's five years, you know, away from your family. That's five years out of the community. That's five years of not being able to... Uh, to you know, move around freely. That's five years of someone telling you when and where and how you're going to eat. You know, you increase the cost of doing business. It's like every other business. You know, they're going to move on. They're going to shut down. They're going to find another line of work. And so, you know, in my mind, uh, you know, more time in prison for the most egregious offenders is increasing the cost of doing business, and that's going to act as a deterrent. And Scott, the psychology of criminals. If you think about it, what Todd was talking about, violent criminals, they are correct. Violent criminals are not thinking about the, the mandatory minimum aspect of the sentence. They are not because they're reacting in the moment. They're shooting somebody. But quite frankly, violent criminals, we're locking them up because they can't control themselves and they're going to hurt somebody. And they are hurting people. Drug traffickers know the mandatory minimums better than you and I do. When you sit down with them, they can give you chapter and verse on exactly what the mandos are. They know what they are because they're part of their business model. And how much are they willing to go away? At what point would they be willing to cooperate? They know the mandatories extremely well, and they are reacting to them. And right now what they're reacting to is the fact that there are no mandatory minimums. So you are seeing crime rates beginning to tick up. And particularly murder, you're not only seeing the murder rate ticking up, and I'm talking about places like Philadelphia, you are seeing the clearance rate for homicides drop because these homicides happen in drug-infested areas by drug dealers. The only way to get them to cooperate is to use mandos. When they know that there is no mando hanging over their head, nobody's going to cooperate. So not only are you seeing the murder rate ticking up, you are seeing the clearance rate ticking down. And that is going to be the long-term impact if we do not get mandatory minimums back on the books. Republican State Representative Todd Stevens of Montgomery County and Chester County District Attorney Tom Hogan. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. All right, we just heard from uh, State Representative Todd Stevens and uh, Chester County DA uh, Tom Hogan about why they support re-implementing uh, mandatory minimum sentences for certain drug crimes. Uh, and let's face it, they're they're talking mostly about uh, the drug dealers and not the users uh, and some violent crimes as well. Now let's hear uh, the other side of uh, the debate. Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel joins us. Secretary Wetzel, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate it. Also, Kevin Ring is president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Mr. Ring, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. 
All right, uh, John Wetzel, I, I'm, I'm sure you heard uh, what uh, our previous guest had to say, and uh, you do know uh, some of the arguments uh, for reinstating minimums. Lay out the case for not doing that. Yeah, well, I think uh, we've built criminal justice policy on anecdotes far too long. Um, and I think what we have is we have years of research that says that not only do mandatory minimums, and, and specifically for drug offenses, uh, so I think one of the things that your listeners, it's really important that they understand is um, let's talk about mandatory minimums for drug offenses separate from mandatory minimums from violent offenses. Because, frankly, the mandatory minimums for violent offenses from a uh, population standpoint don't have uh, a huge impact. Um, but, and, but the reason I think that's an important distinction is because we conflate the two, and then it allows us to, to slide into the anecdotes of, uh, you know, back of the 1980s, soft on crime versus hard on crime and all that stuff. Um, and I, I, I just simply suggest we look at the facts. And uh, Reason.com just looked at uh, an analogous situation in 1993 in Florida where they uh, introduced mandatory minimums specifically for opiates. And what the, the, the thing that stuck out to me the most is 63% of the people who were in prison under those mandatories it was the first time they were incarcerated. Now, that's not who, that's not who we want to target. Um, who we want to target is the kingpins, the top-level drug dealers, and 100%. I, let, me, let me also say this. Um, I, I don't question the intent of prosecutors. We pay prosecutors to put people in prison. Um, and we all want public safety. I just think that, that history and research has showed us that this does not deliver enhancements to public safety, and it's going to cost us $85 million, which will translate into less money being spent on things like prevention, uh, education, uh, workforce development, things that actually keep people from not committing crime. So I just think there's not a research base, and if we're going to, uh, if we're going to introduce or reintroduce a government program that's going to spend $85 million, we should have some expectations there's going to be some outcome and some measurable. When you uh, say 85... Early, from early on in the Corbett administration, we put the measurable as crime rate. And, and uh, you look, just in the past uh, two months, we've seen Lebanon County, uh, Allegheny County, and, and Dauphin County all touting significant reductions in crime. And this is after the mandatory minimums were out. Um, so all I'm saying is when we make an argument like this, it needs to be based on actual facts. And we have uh, analogies in other states, and we have stuff right here in the state that suggests that it doesn't, in fact, enhance public safety. Well, let's go back to what uh, our, our previous guest said, who su- support uh, reinstating some of the minimums. Uh, Tom Hogan mentioned that uh, even though you cited Lebanon County for one and, and another, uh, that violent crime rates in Philadelphia and some other places have been going up, and that crime rates did fall at the time when mandatory minimums were in place. Did yeah. mandatory minimums have anything to do with that in your mind? Yeah, I think initially uh, the mandatory minimums, and, and especially uh, mandatory minimums for violent offenders back in the 90s, were part of a reduction in crime. Uh, with that being said, as mandatory minimums have, have been going by the wayside in state after state, crime continues to go down. We've learned that uh, those mandatory minimums, especially for drug crimes, are not written with precision, and so we end up locking up um, lower-level but primarily addicts, as, as I said, 63% of everybody who's sitting uh, under an opioid mandatory in Florida 
uh, is a first-time offender. That's not the narrative of who we're talking about when we're talking about targeting these drug dealers who are in it for business. Well, that's what um, Representative Stevens said, that they're, they're not targeting users, that what he's proposing here would target those who are selling drugs, dealers. Yeah, that, and, and that's, in, that's the theory we talk about, but when you look at it in practice, you see quite the opposite. I mean, the Florida, um, the, the legislation in Florida is very similar to the, the verbiage here, and that didn't result in only targeting those high-level drug dealers. This uh, legislation is not written with enough precision to deliver that. Kevin Ring, families against mandatory minimums. Uh, families against mandatory minimums. I'm curious uh, where families come into this. How did you get involved? Well, we see families who get torn apart by excessively long sentences. And I have to say, I mean, listening to D.A. Hogan speak, I swear he must have been wearing a denim jacket, carrying a boombox, and playing with a Rubik's Cube. It was the 80s. This was This is rhetoric we haven't heard in 30 years about how... We give everyone a one-size-fits-all sentences, and crime goes down. We know that's not true. And if Representative Stevens can take as long as he wants to find the studies that demonstrate the mandatory minimums reduce crime, he's going to be looking for a long time. We have 30 years of evidence now of how these laws have been implemented, and they have not proven to reduce crime. Now, I do agree, and Secretary Wetzel said the same, that when they first implemented you know, sort of more prison-reliant policies in the 80s, crime started to go down. But over the last 20 years, you've seen other states repeal their mandatory minimum sentencing laws, reform them, give judges more discretion, and their crime rates continue to drop and in some cases drop faster. New York repealed the harshest mandatory minimum drug laws in the country, the Rockefeller drug laws. New York City now is a family destination. And so this idea that we can't be safe without mandatory minimums, I just, it's the most outdated, obsolete, and disproven idea. Well, let me just talk about that address, uh, you know, a question to you along those lines. Yes, things have changed in the last 30 years. Uh, 30 years ago, we were talking about crack cocaine, and uh, today we are not talking about it, but we are talking about uh, an epidemic of opioid use, heroin in particular, yeah. uh, across this country. Now, yeah, Representative Stevens said that he's not targeting users, but the people who are selling the drugs. Well, this should be embarrassing to his side then, because we have had stiff, lengthy heroin mandatory minimums at the federal level throughout this whole period. This epidemic arose on the watch of their regime of tough federal mandatory minimums. So I don't understand how that makes his point. They know that the, the biggest dealers, the biggest uh, traffickers in the state even, that the federal prosecutors will say, kick those cases to us because we have the longer sentences. So that's been happening for years. So it's no argument to say, hey, look, we can do for heroin what we've done for these other drugs. No, thank you. Mm. Representative, or representative, you're not running yet. No. I haven't so, been demoted. Last <laughs> <week>. <laughs> Secretary Wetzel, uh, you know, let me get your office straight. Uh, you know, when our previous guest said that, uh, you know, they have respect for you, uh, but they also said that in a way they felt you were being soft on crime, that you want to empty the prisons. Your response to that? Yeah, well, first of all, again, I have a lot of respect for, for uh, District Attorney Hogan, and I'm not, you know, it's, it's uh, attack the messenger when you can't attack the message. So um, I, I say whatever on that piece. I think uh, what we've consistently done from the day I walked through the door here with Governor Corbett, who I assume 
would also be in that category of soft on crime is, is try to use research and data to drive good public policy and drive crime down. And, and over our time here, we have 3,000 less inmates and we have less crime. And, and, and you, you know, you can pick, if you look at the crime across Pennsylvania, it's the same as it was last year. It's still at historic lows. And nationally, we've seen a couple cities um, um, drive up, have upticks in violent crime that are still 20-year lows. So, again, I, I, we built bad policy on rhetoric. We don't use rhetoric to, to build policy in the medical field or in the science field. If, uh, again, we need to use data and research to suggest policies that deliver outcomes. And if the outcome is lowering crime, the notion that we just lock more people up um, and lock lower-level people up, who's the, the primary reason it, uh, that they're uh, committing crime is addiction and not address the addiction doesn't make any sense. And it's also contrary to all the narrative we've heard around at these opioid roundtables uh, as I was traveling around uh, the Commonwealth with the governor, it, we've heard prosecutors and everybody say we can't arrest our way out of this. Uh, the simple fact is the, the drug mandatories and the language in drug mandatories entraps the people who we say we don't want to arrest our way out of it. And also, um, keep in mind, as long as there's going to be a demand, um, there's going to be drug dealers. So well, part of the solution has to be prevention and treating addiction and those kinds of things. And spending more money on a correction system when you don't get any return on that investment from a public safety standpoint just simply defies logic. Hmm. Uh, Kevin Ring, what about that? Well, I just I, – I, Secretary Wetzel is good not to take the bait. It, it's a little tiresome to be called soft on crime when you oppose an idea that doesn't work. And so in that category is the American Conservative Union, the Faith and Freedom Foundation, the Commonwealth Foundation – all of these people are incredibly soft on crime because they don't support the DA's favorite approach. And I think the 800-pound elephant here that doesn't get addressed is that so much of this is about power. And I think you can't understand this debate without that. There's no studies that prove that mandatories make us safer. But it's about power. All the DA's want mandatory minimums. All the judges don't want them to have mandatory minimums. Why? Because the DA's who already have the unreviewable authority about who to charge, what what uh, charges to bring now want control over sentencing. So there's no, I mean, there's no question why they want it. All government actors want more power. But you can't understand this debate only for a prism of safety because the studies don't support what they've said. Well, let me just can I interrupt for just one yeah. second. I mean, uh, Tom Hogan gave an example of, uh, you know, someone who uh, was very dangerous selling the, I think he said 20 bags of, of heroin, got a nine-day sentence, and, and he, he said point blank that one of the reasons that minimums were introduced in the first place, implemented in the first place, was that judges couldn't be, couldn't be trusted. Well, I think that's I think that's false. Uh, first of all, if a judge goes below a sentence that you think is appropriate, prosecutors can appeal that sentence. The second thing I'd say is, if you look at Pennsylvania, more than most states, you have a functioning, smart, intelligent sentencing commission that Representative Stevens said he is a part of. They keep statistics on judges. They show that judges are following the guidelines. You do not have judges that are going way outside. Do they do that sometimes? Yes, there's human discretion in the system. And this is the thing that's so crazy to me is they don't mind that there's discretion in the system. They just don't want the judges to have that discretion because judge, because prosecutors already decide sometimes not to bring charges that carry mandatory minimums when they don't think they fit. 
But if they if the judge doesn't think a mandatory minimum fits, they don't want them to have the discretion to go below it. So it's not a matter of is there going to be some outlier cases and human error. That's a that's the system that you know humans operate. It's going to have that. What's interesting is they only want to preclude one group of people from exercising discretion, and it's not them. Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel and Kevin Ring, President of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Well, it's obviously uh, a very complicated issue and uh, one that uh, there there are sides have been have been chosen there. But uh, wanted to present both sides where you could you can hear and uh, kind of make up your own minds today. And uh, we'll do that more often in the in the future about this issue. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Pennsylvania Department of Transportation announced this week that there were almost 1,200 traffic fatalities on Pennsylvania roads in 2016. That's a record low since records began being kept in 1928. What's behind the trend toward fewer deaths on the highways? And it is a trend. Joining us to discuss these traffic safety improvements is PennDOT Press Secretary Rich Kirkpatrick. Rich, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here. All right. So I said almost 1,200. It actually is 1,188. And, you know, in today's when I when I first heard that, uh, you know, this is a record low since 1928, I thought to myself, wow. There are so many more cars on the road today than there were in 1928, 1929, all the way up through uh, you know, the 1960s, 1970s, for us to set a record low. What was the thinking? What, I mean, what was your reaction at PennDOT? Well, again, we in Governor Tom Wolf's administration really take uh, highway safety very seriously. And as this statistic shows, we're making really good progress to uh, improving safety on the highways. And uh, fortunately, it's been kind of a trend over the past 10 years or so. If you look back 10 years or so ago, the across the board, the statistics for fatalities and crashes uh, were much higher. So we're making a lot of progress on the, uh, the fatality front. But again, highway safety is such a huge challenge. Governor Tom Wolf and the administration take it very seriously because at the heart of it, it's persuading individual drivers to do the right thing which that's really hard to do. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, you kind of identified the challenge. Talk about that challenge. Well, uh, you know, it's it's almost trying to get inside of people's heads. And we do that through a combination of law enforcement with state police and local police, with the county-based safety partners, with our own safety staff, driving home a couple of points, one of which, and it's a big one now, is Put down the device when you're behind the wheel. You cannot multitask when you're driving a several-ton vehicle because the, the landscape in front of you can change so dramatically so quickly that even if you look off for a second to do a text or something like that, the potential for tragedy is really great. You really have to focus on the road ahead of you. Put down the device. Other aspects of the safety message are never drive impaired, uh, either alcohol or drugs, which is becoming a, a huge problem. Uh, you know, again, that's part of keeping your focus on the road. Some other things that people can do is always wear seat belts, don't drive aggressively, uh, make sure you're obeying the speed limit. A combination of those factors, it's almost a mantra. If people can keep those things in their mind when they get behind the wheel, 
we'll continue to see this very favorable trend of, of the lower fatalities. I have to say, Rich, that one of the reasons I was surprised that uh, the trend was toward fewer fatalities on the road. And by the way, should mention, we're still talking about uh, almost 1,200 lives that were, were taken uh, in Pennsylvania last year. So uh, it's mixed news. It's, uh, That's it's exactly news right. That, uh, we are setting record lows, but still 1,200 lives were lost on the highways. Um, but I have to say that one of the reasons that I was a little bit surprised at that is there are some factors, some things on the road, some distractions on the road today that weren't there 10, 20, 60 years ago, like distracted driving. I mean, do we know how many of these fatalities were related to someone on a cell phone or some distracted driving last year? Now, we just know that, again, as I said, distracted driving is such a challenge. Um, that's a negative in the overall bright picture. Uh, in fact, uh, the number of distracted driving uh, fatalities rose uh, slightly from 66 to 69 in 2016. And the number of crashes uh, involving the drivers who are distracted is, is up significantly, up from 14,810 to 16,050. So again, distracted driving is the one trend that is running counter to the favorable trends, particularly for DUI, which we're really seeing uh, a drop in. Uh, and so, again, that's why we, we continue to focus uh, our educational efforts, uh, our efforts here today, talking with you on Smart Talk to just remind people that, yeah, you know, the devices are pervasive. They're everywhere. But uh, and, and people seem to pride themselves on being able to multitask. Yeah. But it but it simply has to stop when you get in that vehicle behind the wheel because you're risking horrible outcomes if you try to do that multitasking in that situation. So it, it's the, it's, it, will be it will continue to be a focus of our efforts because, as I just said, that's the one trend that we're seeing not going in a favorable direction. You say that we're seeing fewer DUI traffic fatalities. Do we know why? We know that uh, in the last 20 years or so, last 30 years, there has been aggressive education in that area. Uh, but what are some of the factors that have led to that? Well, again, we think it's the uh, the ongoing efforts. Uh, law enforcement plays a big role with the very aggressive uh, DUI enforcement, with DUI checkpoints, and the uh, the continued messaging and, edu and education that goes on. And it, perhaps it's a case of where finally, you know, the idea of uh, drinking to excess and then getting into a vehicle is getting such a stigma that, that it's resonating with people. And the statistics seem to show that. We're seeing a lot of progress in that regard. Now, again, with the distracted driving, we've got to get that same stigma there so that people will remember to uh, put down the device and just focus on the road ahead. It's almost become part of some people's hands that they're using their devices all the time and they don't even think about it when they're driving that it's, it's second nature. But let's face it, there's no way. In fact, I'm sure you're aware of statistics have shown that distracted driving, using a device, a mobile phone, uh, could be just as serious as you could be as distracted as, as if you were drinking. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're exactly right. And, uh, and you're right. I tend to be a bit of a dinosaur. I'm pretty much uh, an old print guy and still like newspapers. And I've been in venues. <laughs> I've been in venues, for example, a number of years, within the past year or so, a concert at Chippensburg University. And I was stunned at all of the people that uh, were con 
continuing on the devices, checking Facebook, you know, even during the concert or in the lead up to the concert. And and you're right. That's what's happening now. So the idea of having that device at hand and constantly checking it uh, has become second nature. But if you continue to do that behind the wheel, uh, there's tragedy will ensue. So we really have to drive home that point to put the put the device down. As you mentioned, we are seeing fewer DUI related fatalities. But as you also touched on, something that we are seeing more of is people who are driving under the influence of drugs. Uh, we are well aware that uh, we have an opioid epidemic across this country. Yes. And I've, I've talked to people from the Pennsylvania uh, DUI Association, state police, who say that, uh, you know, we're finding better ways to uh, determine if someone has used drugs or under the influence of drugs when they're driving. But because many more people are using opioids, it seems as though that will be make it even more dangerous out on the highways. It will be. That will be a challenge. Uh, you know, you have had programs uh, recently where, you know, you've talked about how devastating that crisis is. Governor Tom Wolf is committed uh, through a variety of programs and has made it almost a cornerstone of his administration to, to deal with this just incredible opioid crisis. So for those of us in traffic safety, it, along with distracted driving, will continue to be a very, very tough challenge. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest is Rich Kirkpatrick. He's the press secretary at the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. We're talking about a report released earlier this week that showed that uh, Pennsylvania had almost 1,200 traffic fatalities in 2016. The exact number was actually 1188. Uh, and that's a record low since records began being kept in 1928. So uh, this is, uh, even though it's mixed news, it is good news overall that uh, fewer people are dying on the highways. So, Rich, uh, overall, and I want to get into, you know, one of the things that the, the research showed here is some areas where most of these fatalities have occurred. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But overall, uh, what is the thinking at PennDOT amongst state police as to why the total number of fatalities are down? Uh, again, there's... N- we don't have specific scientific research that could point to the specific reasons, but uh, again, under Governor Tom Wolf, we have made highway safety such a focus with uh, the ongoing safety education efforts that we do, with the continued cooperation of state police and local law enforcement. Uh, enforcement is really a key to uh, to the success of this. And then, in addition, uh, the engineering aspects, the uh, the the, the Improvements to the infrastructure that we can do, uh, such things as uh, center and edge line rumble strips and uh, increasing use of cable stayed uh, barrier on some of our interstates. Uh, you know, these are some of the engineering aspects that go into the overall equation here. So we would like to think that this ongoing trend, and it's been significant over time in a number of different uh, areas of crashes, is a result, uh, the accumulation of all these efforts, uh, enforcement, education, uh, really trying to uh, drive the point home that uh, you know highway safety is important, and and we've talked here about how we're gratified that uh, we're hitting record lows on the overall fatality numbers, but again, it's close to 1,200 people, mm. and part of the problem has been over time that it, it happens in such incremental fashion that somehow that seems to uh, diminish the impact. If if a, if 1,200 people died all at once. 
that would be a big impact. But again, because it's incrementally out over a period of time, that seems to lose some of its impact. And, and the efforts here today and, and ongoing at PennDOT and with law enforcement is to make the point that that is 1,200 lives. That's just unacceptable. We've got to continue to get towards what is the ultimate goal, which is zero fatalities, a specific goal that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has set and we at PennDOT and state police also embrace. Let's talk about some factors and some of the places where these fatalities occurred. You know, we always hear about speed. And when you're talking about uh, enforcement, many people, their first thought goes to uh, state police or maybe even local police that are trying to keep people from driving too fast, going over the speed limit, driving too fast for conditions. What role did speed play in many of these fatalities? Uh, speed, uh, you know, that continues to be uh, an issue. The fatalities in speeding crashes, uh, actually, uh, you know, there, there was a slight increase. Uh, in 2015, it was 177. In 2016, it was up to uh, 191. And uh, in terms of uh, the number of uh, speeding crashes, uh, that so an increase. Uh, in 2015, it was 3,941. In 2016, it was 4,258. So again, it indicates that within the subset of the overall favorable trends, there still are some anomalies that, uh, that we need to pay attention to. And that's why state police, local police are so intent on, you know, enforcing the speed limits. Uh, people may get annoyed that, well, I got pulled over, but uh, there's a reason behind it. And again, the statistics here are showing that in an overall bright picture, uh, speeding, uh, you know, continues to be an issue along with uh, distracted driving. Another area where we saw an increase in fatalities was in pedestrian deaths. And, you know, I've heard several people over the last six months or so say that, boy, it seems like we're hearing a whole lot more about the pedestrians being hit by cars. And that, even though that was an observation, what's being reported on the news, apparently it was a good observation because we have seen more pedestrian fatalities. Yes, that, uh, that is uh, an ongoing issue, something that uh, we're paying attention to. Uh, we've had, uh, in line with that, uh, a pilot project with the city of Philadelphia uh, to do uh, some some outreach, uh, you know, targeting social media, some bus and bus shelter advertising, really pushing uh, the message of, uh, uh, again, pedestrian safety is important. And, uh, you know, it's an ongoing pilot program. We're going to take some lessons learned from that demonstration project and, and try to share best practices uh, across the, uh, the, uh, the state. Also, under the most recent uh, federal uh, authorization, the FAST Act of 2018, uh, there are some additional uh, pedestrian safety enforcement and educational programs that are available, and we're going to be looking into utilizing those as well. So, you know, it's probably a good time to say to those who are pedestrians, be very careful, and to motorists, watch for pedestrians when they're out there as well. Geographically, Rich, uh, where were most of the fatalities last year? Um, again, they're, they're pretty much spread across the state. Unfortunately, I do not have the okay. specifics on, on the geographical breakdown, but uh, uh, it's, it, it's a big state, so it tends to be uh, spread across the board. What about, uh, like, not just geographic areas, but I noticed that uh, uh, the number of fatalities at intersections were up. Are there areas, and when I say areas, I'm not talking about a place, uh, geography, 
But uh, are there parts of, of the, when someone's driving out there that are more dangerous? Well, intersections by their very nature, which entails crossing traffic as opposed to interstates where uh, it's, it's granted it's higher speeds, but you don't have cross traffic. Uh, that's one of the reasons, and sometimes uh, this has been a tough sh- sell with people, but here in Pennsylvania nationwide, there is a trend to go towards roundabouts. Uh, Some people confuse that with the old traffic circles that uh, were prevalent in New Jersey. They're totally different. And the research has shown that, again, by eliminating the cross movement of traffic, that has a dramatic safety impact. And again, that is why uh, PennDOT, uh, following national trends, is increasingly looking to that at uh, specific intersections to try to enhance safety there. But again, it's, it's intersections are perhaps among the more dangerous uh, spots, uh, again, because of that potential of crossing traffic. And that ties into if someone is distracted and misses the stop sign or misses the, uh, the traffic light, then particularly in urban areas, you're involving pedestrians. So it's all kind of interconnected. So we will be seeing here in Pennsylvania more roundabouts. Yes, uh, they've, they've been increasingly uh, uh, installed uh, as, an, as a safety option. And again, uh, we have information on our website about roundabouts, uh, and we try to do some educational outreach when one goes into a specific area because initially people seem to be confused about what you do. And basically, it's a matter of you yield to whoever is in the, uh, the roundabout, and then when the line is clear, then you move in. And, and part of the safety aspect is that it, it slows down traffic without forcing, for the most part, people to come to a stop and without forcing traffic to cross one another. So, Rich, I want to thank you very much for being with us, by the way. Uh, what does the future look like? I mean, obviously, this is a good trend. How do we keep this trend continuing? This is not meant to be a cop-out, but again, it comes down to individual driver behavior. Uh, you know, Law enforcement is doing its best to enforce, uh, you know, the no texting laws and the speed laws, the DUI laws. Uh, We at PennDOT work very, very hard on educational programs, uh, working with our county safety partners. uh, And but what it comes down to, are people listening to that message? Are they embracing that message? Perhaps we've seen, uh, as I said, uh, a stigma attached to DUI that's helping to drive that down. Now we have to persuade people that, uh, you know, to be distracted, to try to multitask behind the wheel, that, as you've said, is as dangerous as DUI because the impact is the same. You're impaired. You're not keeping your focus on the road ahead. So, again, our efforts will continue to be uh, focused on uh, the distracted driving in particular and the other areas where, you know, we see some of the the negative trends. We're all trying to get it to uh, the positive trend that we've seen with the overall fatalities. And again, the overall goal, which is zero fatalities. Rich Kirkpatrick is press secretary for the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation. Rich, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here. And I don't want to sound too preachy, but uh, think about what you just heard over the last uh, 20 minutes or so. Put down the cell phone when it's in the car, especially uh, when thinking about texting. And uh, slow down, too. We'll all be safer out on the roads. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we try to do this uh, every spring, where we have a program devoted to uh, gardening tips. It's not just gardening, but uh, trees, lawns, houseplants, anything that grows in dirt. We'll be uh, talked about on tomorrow's program.